Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. I'm David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist here at JP Morgan Funds. As we start our fourth season, unemployment has fallen significantly, inflation is still running hot, and the Fed has turned more hawkish with the potential for four or even five rate hikes this year. Against this backdrop, US equity markets have stumbled and long-term rates have finally started to rise. But an unprecedented pandemic recession has been followed by a similarly dramatic and unprecedented recovery, and the risks for a Fed misstep here are substantial. This is a particularly challenging time for portfolio positioning, as investors try to navigate these macro twists and turns amidst broadly lower return expectations and significant distortions across asset classes. In this season, I've invited a slate of experts and thought leaders to discuss a variety of topics and questions in an attempt to provide some insight into how to invest in a post-pandemic world. On February 1st, China ushered in the Year of the Tiger. The Tiger zodiac sign is associated with strength and the potential for positive surprises, which could be a welcome signal for investors after a tumultuous 2021 in Chinese equity markets. The year ahead for China holds substantial political and economic significance from the Winter Olympics in Beijing to the Communist Party's 20th National Congress. China faces substantial challenges, including a property bubble, how to relax pandemic restrictions without triggering a massive COVID wave, and increasingly contentious international relationships. However, for investors, cheap valuations and China's emphasis on growth stability with support of monetary and fiscal policy in a world where nearly every other central bank is tightening policy tend to support the case for adding Chinese assets to portfolios. To discuss what investors should expect from China in the year ahead and to put this in the context of China's long-term growth story, I'm very glad to be joined again by my colleague Gabriela Santos. Gabriela is a global market strategist here at JP Morgan, is responsible for our Guide to China publication and recently co-authored a paper on Chinese assets in our 2022 long-term capital market assumptions. So Gabriela, welcome back to Insights Now. Super, thank you David, it's great to be back. As we kick off our fourth season, Equity markets have seen quite a lot of volatility. Uh, strong job reports, higher wages have clearly made the Fed turn a little bit more hawkish here. And markets have seen a pretty swift and significant recalibration, leaving, leading to a big move up in rates and a pretty challenging environment for stocks. So how do you think investors should navigate these elevated levels of volatility early in 2022? So I think, David, what we're seeing this year is that investors are taking seriously the actual withdrawal of liquidity by central banks and are focusing on valuations again. Um, so evaluations haven't mattered for the better part of the last uh, five years, but they're really starting to matter again. And, and we're really seeing investors rotate from expensive to less expensive areas of the market. And we think that is so important uh, for future returns. When we look at just the average return of a 60-40 portfolio, based on current high valuations, we projected in our long-term capital market assumptions to only be annualized returns of 4.3%. So we have got to do better than that. And I think really the onus is first off on, on active management, but second of all, just to focus on new markets. And that's where I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, for a new market like China, Chinese equities, Chinese bonds, where we project higher returns going forward. It can really help the sharp ratio, can really help portfolio returns. True. But uh, of course, last year, a big source of equity market volatility around the world actually came from China. Uh, China's regulatory crackdown on business and, and particularly on, on the property sector seemed to kind of slow down a, a sort of go-to source of growth. And then, of course, you've got the mixture of China's zero tolerance restrictions and the threat of Omicron 
and that is constraining economic activity further and certainly certainly asking questions about growth um, in 2022 and beyond. So how do you see the, the year ahead for China? Yeah, so I think last year was a reminder that Chinese equities do come with higher volatility. They have doubled the volatility of U.S. equities. That's expected to, to continue. And every few years, you have these particularly volatile years like last year, where you have over 30% corrections. It happened in 2018, 2015, 2011, and it happened again. It's business as usual. These periods of volatility are associated with the introduction of new reforms in China. And that's what happened last year, the year of the ox. It was uh, really about China hunkering down, focusing on its longer term priorities. So the regulations, there's so many of them, but if you put them in a mosaic, they were really focused on improving the quality of growth in China, not just the quantity. It was also focused on non just purely economic priorities, like reducing inequality, decarbonization, reducing leverage. This year, though, I think the focus here in the year of the tiger is focusing back a little bit on balancing those long term priorities with some more pragmatic short term concerns as well. That's because you did see a deceleration in economic growth in China last year, the fourth quarter, only 4% year over year growth. This year, the focus is on at least stabilizing that growth, getting it back to what we think China would like to see, which is at least 5% growth. So the reforms aren't going to be canceled, but I think we're really expecting to see better communication as well as some fine tuning to get us to that floor on growth. And and of course, a a very different policy backdrop for many countries, uh, many important other markets in the world. I mean, the Fed, the ECB, Bank of England are now all solidly on a tightening path. But China seems to be easing policy right now. What is China's monetary and fiscal policy expected to look like this year? And what does that mean for Chinese assets? Yeah, so China really has a very, very separate uh, economic cycle, policy cycle from the rest of the world. That was true last year. China was tightening policy. The rest of the world was easing. And it's become true, again, the the other way with China easing policy while the rest of the world tightens policy this year. And one of the things that's permitting China to beat to the sound of its own drum this year is that actually inflation is quite low in China. We hear about high producer prices, double digits in China, but not consumer prices. Headline is only one and a half, core is only 1.2 versus China's target of 3%. So that gives monetary fiscal authorities breathing room to provide more support to get that floor on economic growth. And we really started to see this pivot back in July with the first reserve requirement cut for Chinese banks. That continued. We also saw several uh, cuts to key interest rates, uh, boost in in certain areas uh, for lending and front loading of fiscal policy. So really policies turning from restrictive last year to at least neutral, slightly stimulative this year. Our favorite metric is the credit impulse in China. It's very all-encompassing. So how much faster is credit growing than the economy? It was negative 2.5% in December. That should start to turn positive this year. Uh, And it's just a good reminder, actually, that Chinese government bonds are the only ones that can zig when Treasuries zag. They were down last year when bond yields were up. 
we're seeing a repeat of the same this year. You had a big outperformance then of Chinese government bonds last year, up 8.7%. And you're seeing that again this year, up 1%. So I think it's just a good reminder that Chinese bonds can be a really good diversifier. For equities in general, just having a bit more comfort on growth with this policy easing can also help uh, put a floor on Chinese equities uh, as the year goes on. So... Obviously, one of the big challenges this year is that China has, really since the start of the pandemic, had a zero COVID policy. Uh, but of course, that is now being significantly challenged by the very, very contagious Omicron variant. How do you think this is going to play out? I mean, is China going to stay firm in its approach? And what risks are there from all of this uh, for uh, Chinese growth and indeed for global supply chains? Yeah, so <laughs> Chinese households really just went through the third Chinese New Year in a row with this zero COVID approach uh, that China's been following. So basically, it means any kind of local rise in cases triggers restrictive uh, measures on mobility in China. We don't think they'll abandon that approach for the better part of this year. Um, That's, as a result, leaving China kind of as the only country that's still pursuing this approach. And the reason we say that is because China over the last two years has spent a lot of political capital on really using this approach as a way to justify what they would consider a superior governance model in China versus the West. So how do you back away from that uh, without having better treatments or without having uh, less contagious variants? It's, It's a very tricky balancing act. The risk is that this variant is so contagious that China is then forced to go back to national, very restrictive lockdowns like it had February, March of 2020 at the worst of the pandemic. That's a risk. It's not the base case right now. We'll have to see how cases evolve after Chinese New Year, after the Winter Olympics, uh, and how localized restrictions can or cannot stay. Of course, if we do go back to those really uh, national lockdowns, that would really decelerate Chinese growth again. Closer to that 2% figure would impact global growth and would impact global supply chains if we did see activity in ports and factories restricted. So... And, and of course, China also has some geopolitical risks. Uh, Xi Jinping is expected to get ratified in an unprecedented third term in office later this year. And what should we expect to see from his next term? And also we've got elections in the United States uh, in November. How do you think that the U.S.-China relationship is going to develop from here? So I, I really think uh, both from the China side and the U.S. side, there's really a hunkering down on, on each side's kind of particular uh, governance model, economic model, and priorities. Um, and we have been uh, seeing President Xi Jinping really enshrine his vision for China uh, within the Chinese Communist Party, really especially since 2018. He's now become only the third leader in Chinese history to have done that in addition to Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. And really his vision is for a China that going forward is more assertive uh, in its priorities on the global stage, that's more nationalistic, uh, that really rallies around uh, the Chinese Communist Party at the heart uh, of Chinese society. And from an economic perspective, that's very much focused on the next phase of its growth, on keeping productivity high, uh, and on what uh, the Chinese government is now calling a more 
orderly expansion of capital, uh, which means that they're focusing on certain regulations to target other priorities, uh, like ensuring common prosperity. So not just growing the pie, but splitting it a little bit more evenly going forward. From the U.S. side, we do think the competition is going to continue, especially around the epicenter uh, of cutting-edge technology. Uh, some conflict from time to time and issues around uh, human rights and geopolitics, but also some cooperation there in, where interests align, uh, certain economic uh, trade as well as um, cybersecurity, uh, as well as um, climate change. So really a fixture of, of the next generation here, this competition between the two, the two countries. So turning back to the sort of short-term outlook for, for China, recently the IMF cut its growth outlook for China for 2022 by half percentage point to 4.4%. And they cited pandemic-induced distortions and financial stress among property developers. How do you think China's property slowdown could affect its long-term growth trajectory? So I think uh, residential properties really at the epicenter of a lot of China's new priorities and, and not in a good way. Um, so first, in terms of improving the quality of growth, real estate really did the trick when it came to the quantity of growth. For 20 years, there was a ton of residential real estate investment. We heard all about the ghost cities that China built over time, getting ready for, for its future urbanization. Uh, and real estate certainly became a very big part of China's economy. 10% of GDP just residential real estate investment. But now the focus is on quality. And building more cities, more homes, isn't really seeing as high quality growth. It's just not productive anymore. It's also something that can be potentially destabilizing when you get a sector of the economy that becomes so large. It's also at the epicenter of other priorities like ensuring common prosperity because housing has become extremely unaffordable in China. The five most expensive cities in the world are in China, even before you get to New York or Tokyo or Paris. Um, so there's also a focus on reducing the cost of living uh, for, for Chinese households. So structurally, we believe residential real estate investment uh, is in decline in China. The question is cyclically how quickly that happens. And there's signs that perhaps it was happening a bit too quickly late last year. So you're seeing some fine tuning uh, from uh, policymakers in China to get it to slow down a little less quickly. Things like boosting some mortgage lending again or boosting access to cash for property developers. It's a tricky balance, certainly. It is another big risk uh, for uh, the Chinese economy in addition to that Omicron risk uh, that we were discussing. There are areas of opportunity in uh, real estate. It's just in, in different areas. It's much more industrial, commercial, retail. And that's something that's under development in China. There's uh, a new building, a REITs market, for example. Okay. Um, another challenge China's facing is really sort of a demographic labor kind of challenge. Uh, by 2025, China's Ministry of Education estimates that there's going to be a shortage of nearly 30 million workers in the manufacturing sector. That seems quite significant. So what, do, what does China do about that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, usually we think emerging markets, we think, you know, better demographics than the West. That's a key area uh, of just natural growth. Not so in China. 
China has really tricky demographics. It has the same average age of the population as the United States. Um, and it's just getting going to get less bang for your buck from the urbanization of that population as, as you're further along in that process now, 20 years later. So going forward, China's growth, we estimate about 0% of it actually is going to come from the labor component, kind of similar to, to the West. It's going to have to come from really especially the productivity side. So productivity needs to do a lot of heavy lifting. Over half of growth needs to come from productivity. And that's why China keeps harping so much on this improvement of the quality of growth piece. Um, and it needs to evolve, right? It, it needs to be much more focused on really the industries of the future. And speaking of manufacturing and potential shortage of workers, it involves a lot of, of uh, business technology, like the automation uh, of factories. That's a really big uh, focus for China in terms of keeping productivity high. Um, in addition to other types of cutting edge technology like software, semiconductors, artificial intelligence. So it's, it's another sign that this is a, a new, new China going forward. So for, port for investors who are thinking about adding exposure to China, what would you say are some of the risks and opportunities from a portfolio perspective? So there, there are definitely macro risks that we talked about from the real estate deceleration or uh, um, COVID. There are also geopolitical risks that we discussed in terms of that competition of U.S. and China. And then there are potential portfolio risks. Um, so for the equity side, we mentioned much higher levels of volatility. That's absolutely normal and expected to continue. And then on the fixed income side, you have some liquidity risks. Um, a lot of Chinese bonds are held by domestic banks. There's, it's just more buy and hold. There's less liquidity. So those are portfolio risks. But if we think about the actual rewards, we do think they outweigh those risks. And the rewards are potentially higher returns. Um, so when we think about Chinese equities, we project double the expected returns as the U.S. over the next 10, 15 years. So in U.S. dollars, 8.2% annualized versus 4.1%. Uh, that comes from higher revenue growth. Even though China's slowing down, it still grows faster um, than the U.S. does. Um, also, the tilt of its market towards new, new kind of growthy uh, sectors. And then for valuations, you just have a lot of uh, support from flows from local investors and foreign investors. The rewards in fixed income are uh, also potential higher returns, also double the U.S., we project 5% um, in U.S. dollar terms versus low 2% uh, for the U.S. aggregate. And that just comes from a better interest rate differential, um, China versus the U.S. So, so pretty attractive, uh, you know, when you're looking at the prospect of, of low returns on, on traditional U.S. assets. Um, so, so finally, how should investors invest within China to best capture these opportunities? Yeah, so I think... If we needed a reminder that China's is really a market for alpha, not beta, it, it was last year, right? It, it's very much a market 
where there's a lot of value for being based locally and really understanding uh, the way that Chinese policymakers think, the way that they're pivoting uh, China's economic and regulatory model. Um, so very much a local presence is really important, especially in a market that is less transparent than other markets when it comes to financial results of companies. Validating those results locally are really, really important. Um, the other reason for having a lot of active management is you have a, a shifting uh, economic model. You have capital uh, that's being really reoriented from certain areas of the economy that are now out of favor into new areas of the economy that are now in favor. So it's about really tilting towards China's new, new economy. So it's not the old economy, so not banks, not in industrials or commodities as much. It's also not the old new economy either, like internet or consumer tech uh, kind of companies that are now in regulatory crosshairs. It's the new, new economy. And those include several really interesting themes. Um, we mentioned business-related technology, which is the new consumer technology. Um, so things like software, robotics, and semiconductors. It's still the consumer theme, um, and you, you should get a boost from that, from this idea of common prosperity. But the, the tastes are evolving a bit in China, right? The, this focus on nationalism, on premium domestic brands, um, is something that's new. And then lastly, a, a third theme is decarbonization. So that really benefits renewable energy and electric vehicles. And lastly, it's really about focusing on local markets. So the A-share market in China is what's really um, receiving a lot of support, um, and also the local currency government bond market. Thank you. That, that, that sounds, uh, sounds like there's a, a, lot, a lot to talk about in China this year, but also a lot of opportunities. Um, so thank you for joining us, Gabriella, and thank you all for listening. Thank you, David. Thank you. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by J.P. Morgan Global Strategist Mira Pandit for discussion of the global energy transition and the opportunities in ESG. Until then, I invite you to download the J.P. Morgan Insights app for iPhone and iPad, which is another way to access this podcast and all of our timely insights on the markets and the economy at your fingertips. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.